Luke, the 24th chapter. And it's a weird time of year to be talking about the resurrection. I get that. That is not lost on me. It just so happens this is where we're ending. And in some ways, though, it's a good thing that we're talking about the empty tomb this time of year because it frees me to highlight different aspects of the resurrection that I might otherwise not be able to do because I'd feel more inclined to talk about Easter if it was around the time of Easter. And so Advent season is just a couple weeks away, and this may prepare our hearts for Advent season in a unique way. And also, so I get that it's, it's a little different that we're talking about the resurrection in the middle of November, but um, this is just how the book of Luke is unpacking for us as we're wrapping it up. And I hope this morning we're able to walk away with a greater appreciation for some facets of what it means, what the empty tomb, empty tomb means. So let's read Luke 24. And I'm, I'm about to read 27 verses, and I want you to really just focus in on these verses and let these verses wash over you. Um, verse 1, here we go. The, the Word of God. Hear the Word of God. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it is Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Jesus, you got to appreciate that. He's like playing dumb. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these, ha th these things happened. And moreover, some of our women, some of the women, uh, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Father, now God, we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage, and may our hearts see afresh aspects of this story that we have never seen before, that we may be excited and filled with a sense of zeal, even as we enter into this season of thanksgiving, give our hearts something to be thankful about. Father, transform us, and may, may we leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's not insignificant that surrounding the death and the burial of the Lord are a group of unnamed women. They were sort of a shadow of the apostolate. The apostles are all men. By this time, there's only 11 because Judas, the betrayer, has committed suicide. There's only 11 of them. Judas has not been betrayed yet by Matthias. And there is the whole while, the whole time that the 12 apostles are Jesus' closest disciples. One of the things this reveals is that there is a group of women equal, if not more, in number than the apostles who are traveling with Jesus as he's coming down from Galilee into Jerusalem the whole time. This group of women, they, they are unofficially like a shadow apostolate. They're like female apostles, if you, can, if you can put it that way, in some sense. They are devoted disciples of Jesus who follow him everywhere he goes, and it reminds me of like the hippie movement. They were probably in their 20s or 30s, most of them. Following Jesus, sleeping where he slept, um, and, and as, he, as his ministry developed and as he moved down all the way to Jerusalem, his journey to Jerusalem, which is Luke 9 and 19, two and a half years we've been in Luke, and a good year of that was in those chapters 9 to 19, that's the journey narrative, his journey from Nazareth and the area up north down to Jerusalem. These women are with him. They're seeing these things. They're not just women he's met in the final week of his life in Jerusalem. They are devoted disciples of Jesus, like I said before, like a shadow apostolate, a group of women who follow Jesus. And it's not unlike the hippie movement in the 1960s where hippies were traveling around the country. I think of that, I always think of that because my parents were hippies in the 1960s. And um, my dad slept in an open field and for a while, and they were up in San Francisco, and you know, this was before the word hippie was even coined. But you know, the hippies, were, they would follow gurus and teachers around the country. My parents thought that Bob Dylan and the Beatles had tapped into like, the truth of the universe. My mom was a Beatles person. My dad was a Bob Dylan guy. And, you know, there was a radical truth at that time that was really sweeping across the nation, which was still kind of novel, which was this idea that, like, love changes everything. Now, for us, it's played out. But, like, coming out of the 1950s into the 1960s, this idea that, like, radical love for neighbor challenged our own sense of, like, self-interested greed and self-protection, and that was a radical message, and people 
uprooted themselves from their communities and their lives and their neighborhoods and their families, and they, you know, they just traveled. They were kind of like vagabonds because they wanted to discover and see what this new message, this idea, radical idea that love changes everything, um, the, the effect that it would have on our nation. And in that sense, the hippie movement was, was very Christian. Um, and many hippies became Christians and started churches all over the country. In fact, a lot of the pastors today who were in their 70s, came out, 60s, came out of that movement. They were looking for love and found it in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus was sort of, for his own time in the first century, the ultimate guru with a radical message that grace changes everything. That grace changes everything. And that the dark forces of hatred and wickedness would be overcome by the embodiment of radical self-abandoning love for God and for others. A love that Jesus demonstrated in himself, in his perfect life, and in his perfect death. And it was a radical message. That grace, that the love of God manifested in grace changed everything. Now that's somewhat of a reductionism, right? Like that the gospel is just about like this radical message of love. It is that, but Jesus was not just some first century hippie going around talking about love, man. That's a reduction of Jesus. Um, he was bringing together the strands of Israel's history and tying together end time expectations about the kingdom of God. He was bringing all of these things together, Israel's prophetic history and expectation about the kingdom of God. And it was exciting for these women to see this outsider named Jesus challenge the power structure of the establishment. Those in religious power who marginalized these women. And Jesus was challenging that structure, speaking truth to power, because they were marginalized by those who were powerful. And so seeing somebody do that was riveting. It was amazing. It filled them with a sense of zeal and excitement that they had never been exposed to before. The New Testament, like fireworks lighting up the sky, sparkles with the important roles that women played in the story of Jesus. This is not a minor detail of the text. This is in your face, and it is meant to be, that women uniquely in the story, especially this most important event of the resurrection, play this pivotal role. In fact, <clears throat> by telling us that the women saw how the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb, and that they were the first on the scene, Luke forever enshrines these women, and women in general as included in the kingdom of God. This is not just details of the story. Luke is specifically targeting and making a point about women and the role that they played in the narrative, the gospel narrative here of Jesus and the resurrection. Yes, female and male roles still exist in the home and in the church, 
But let no one ever say that somehow women play a lesser role in God's kingdom and in his dealings with the world. Luke will not let us say that. He will not let us think that. He will not let us think that women are somehow less important on the stage in God's grand dealings of redemption. And this is another way that the story proves itself to be true because women's testimony in the first century was not worth much. And so for Luke to go out on a limb and say that the women were first to see the empty tomb has to be a demonstration that this is what really happened. Because if he was trying to make the story believable, he would not say that. He would not, he would not use the testimony of women in the first century because they were not valued as much, their testimony was not valued as much, and in a courtroom, a woman's testimony was not And in some places of the world, in some religions like Islam, a woman's testimony in court was not valued. It was like one-third. So for every male testimony, you have to have the testimony of three women, at least in Islam and some countries in the world. And in the first century, it was that way. And Luke is going out on a limb because he's just conveying the history as it is. And this is also, to me, a demonstration that this, this is a true story. This is a true account a way that the story proves itself true. Now, it says that the women returned to the tomb Sunday morning at dawn, and they expected the corpse to be exactly where they saw it laid. So you remember last week, if you were here last week, we talked about Joseph of Arimathea, this rich Jewish member of the Sanhedrin council who condemned Jesus, but he didn't participate in their condemnation of Jesus, and he goes to Pilate because he's rich and wealthy and he has power, and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus to be taken down off the cross, and how that was important because the Romans typically didn't do that, because part of the punishment was to leave the criminal up on the cross and let his body rot and be eaten by animals so that everyone could see as a warning, don't violate the laws of Rome. But Joseph of Arimathea, this member of the Sanhedrin council who believed in Jesus and was expecting the kingdom of God, gets Jesus' body, brings it down, goes through the gruesome task of wrapping his bloody, beaten body and taking it to his tomb, a tomb that he had purchased for himself. Some of you have burial plots. Well, imagine giving your beautiful burial plot to someone else. That's exactly what he did, a tomb that had never been used usually reserved for several members of the family, and he gives it to Jesus, fulfilling that prophecy in the Bible that Jesus was buried along with the rich and made his grave with the wealthy. And the women are perplexed when they see that Jesus' body is not where they laid it. Now, why would they return? They return to lay spices and ointments at Jesus' tomb. Now, they didn't do it the day Jesus was put in the tomb because it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath and they, as faithful Jews, observed the Sabbath. They observed the Sabbath. But on the first day of the week, early in the morning, early in the morning, they went with spices and ointments and this was the first step in honoring Jesus' body. So we talk about Jesus' glorification, that the glory that awaited him after the crucifixion The way he was buried was part of, in the beginning of that process of glorification and honor, where these women bring spices and ointments. And why do you bring spices and ointments to a corpse? Because a rotting body smells. And so to honor him, they bring these spices on the first day of the week. But arriving, they're perplexed at his missing body. 
and they don't understand the significance of the empty tomb. And so this brings us to our first point. The empty tomb is not self-explanatory. This is helpful for us as Christians to recognize because we just assume that telling the story by itself that Jesus rose from the dead, a fact that even atheists know about Christianity, that we believe that our Savior rose from the dead, that that kind of has the power in and of itself to preach the gospel, but it doesn't. The resurrection requires explanation. The women who come to the tomb and see the empty tomb, they're not able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. They're standing there perplexed. Where did his body go? In fact, in some of the other gospel accounts, some of the other women think that his body's been stolen. They're not remembering. They're not putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The empty tomb is not self-explanatory. The angels have to jog their memory. So they see the empty tomb. They're shocked. What's going on? Then they see two men in dazzling apparel. You know, they're glowing apparently. I don't know what dazzling heavenly apparel looks like, but it must have been amazing, shining, And they see them, and they're frightened, and they fall to the ground. And the angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Don't you remember what he said to you while you were still in Galilee? Which to me proves the fact that these women have been traveling with Jesus all the way since he was in the north. Because they were present when he said things in Galilee. And so he has to jog their memory. These are not just women that he's encountered in Jerusalem. This is that group of young women who've been following him, just like the apostles, all the way through his ministry. Don't you remember what he said to you when you were still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And it says, and they remembered his words. They hear that and they go, You remember that? Yeah, that's right. He said that. He said that he had to be crucified and on the third day rise. We we forgot about that. Or we certainly didn't think that this, it's all coming back to us now. They went from being perplexed at his missing body, terrified by the angels, and then feeling elated that he had risen. And apparently God is not too concerned with people having a roller coaster of emotions at what he does, right? Like, like God's just not concerned about that. He's not concerned that they, that they went through these stages of, of like drastic emotions from confusion to ter- being terrified and then elated, like, you know, you know, he just, he's not that. He allows them to go through this Flood of emotions, this roller coaster ride of emotions. Now, what are the words that they remember of Jesus? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. Yes, but that's not all. That is not all they would have remembered. They would have remembered in John chapter 11 when Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, dies. Something happens which is a foretaste of the empty tomb. And Jesus tells Martha, who is mourning over her brother Lazarus, 
Your brother will live again. And Martha says to him, Lord, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. I had to put that letter in bold so I can emphasize it the right way. He doesn't just say, I am the resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection. Sorry, my voice cracked. I am the resurrection. This is really important. Martha's saying, you know, this belief in the resurrection that the righteous will rise from the dead. And Jesus does not say, yes, that's true. He says, you are looking at the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He does not say, whoever believes resurrection is possible will live again. Nor does he say, whoever believes that there is something after this life will live again. He doesn't say, whoever believes that our spirits continue to live on, or reincarnation or something like that, or a host of a whole host of possible explanations for continued existence after death. He doesn't say that. Because a lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that then, a lot of people believe that now. Reincarnation, that, well, there's something, you know, something after this life. But that's not what he says. Jesus does something very specific, very exclusive about what we believe And he says, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will never die. Whatever the resurrection means, it means it in Jesus. Whatever life, eternal life after death means, it means it in Jesus. Because he is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. He's not just the one who helps us find resurrection, he is the resurrection. You're saying, what do you mean by that? I'm not really sure what I mean by that. But whatever it means, he is the center of it. He is the source of it. He is the one who has the power of eternal life and resurrected life in his hands because it somehow flows out of his person. And the resurrection is only accessed through faith in Jesus. Just like the the tearing of the curtain that we talked about last Sunday was proof that exclusively, access to God is exclusively found in Jesus, the one who offers the sacrifice, who removes that barrier between sinful men and a holy God, and that only comes through what Jesus does on the cross, because only after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is complete does the veil rip from top to bottom, then he dies. In the same way, Life after death is entirely in the power of Jesus, exclusively and uniquely, who is himself the definition of the resurrection. 
As Paul in Colossians puts it, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the inaugurator of the new covenant by means of his resurrection. That's what Paul calls him. He's not only the firstborn of creation, but he's the firstborn of the dead because the resurrection launches the new creation. And this creation is marked, not the new creation, but the creation we're in right now is marked and stained by death. All things die. The trees, the animals, people, stars. And this is something that scientists also talk about a lot. For those of you who come from that background, that all things are in a state of entropy, which means that from its very beginning, the universe right now is dying, in the process of dying. Right? Stars are getting older. People are getting older. The earth is getting older. I mean, what, everything, everything is in a, from that point of view is in a state of entropy. Well, that's also a result of the fall, that this creation is marked by death. This creation is stained by death, but the new creation is not. The new creation is marked by life, life that does not die. And so Jesus rising from the dead is the firstborn of the new creation. When Jesus rises from the dead, he launches the new creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation. And anyone who longs to enter into the new creation must have resurrection life. Anyone who wants to live in a cosmos that is not in a state of entropy, that is not in a state of constant and perpetual dying, has to have the resurrection life that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what makes our message exclusive. And this is hard for some people. And the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ should, should not... So packaging it, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. That's not a good way to package it. That may be true. But that is not a good way to package the exclusive claims of Jesus through the gospel. It is better to locate life the life that continues after death in what he's done and accomplished for us in the resurrection. Because that's hopeful. And that explains it a little bit better and gives people a picture into the world that is emerging and coming, that the world that God has planned, the world God originally planned for this planet, he is retrieving and will one day completely come to fruition in a new heavens and a new earth. This is what the angels are reminding the women of. That this is what Jesus was talking about. In Psalm 49, the psalmist wrote, The wicked make their bed in Sheol forever, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. It was a hope an expectation that something different happens to those who are in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that after death, something happens. That death, which is not natural, which affects the wicked in a way that they are unable to escape from it, does not have that same effect on those who walk faithfully and by faith walk in obedience to God. Psalm 16 and 10, For you will not abandon my body to Sheol, or let your Holy One see decay. Which is a prophecy not only about people in the grave, but about Jesus, the Holy One, the Anointed One, whose body did not decompose in that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. 
The women bringing their spices and ointments, knowing that that's what happens to human bodies, but he did not lay in the grave long enough to see decay, fulfilling this passage in Psalm 16. You will not abandon my body to Sheol. The Hebrew word Sheol simply meant the grave. We translate it in English as hell in the New Testament, and it has come to take on much deeper meaning than simply the underworld. It means a place of decay and destruction and punishment. But the Holy One, all of God's Holy Ones, will not see decay in the grave. And first and foremost, that's talking about Jesus. And so these women, like school children, struggling to answer questions on a hard test, get the answer and go running to the rest of the apostles to tell them and share the information with them. They run to tell them. All the, the 11 apostles and all the rest. And it sounds so incredulous to Peter. He has to look for himself. And he doesn't walk, but runs to the tomb. He's thinking, no way. This is unbelievable. I've got to see this for myself. And it says, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, if you've heard this passage read, that, 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 that verse may not have the impact it's meant to have because you've heard it so many times. But if you can imagine where the mind of the women and the apostles are at, they're thinking the movement is over, right? Like the summer of 69 during the hippie era was the, the zenith of the movement, and you know, from 1970 onward, it fizzled, you know? Hippieism became commercialized and they were selling jeans with flowers embroidered already on them. They're thinking the movement's over. Our leader's gone. And so Peter runs to the tomb and he stoops in, incredulous, and he sees the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in lying there. And he went home... Marveling. I don't think that that Greek word marvel really conveys what he probably felt. Now, I don't know what each one of us have experienced as a sense of marvel. I think the first time I kissed my wife, I probably had this sense of this wonder and excitement as a teenager. And, you know, for everyone, it's different something that just made you skip home in excitement and in disbelief that something has happened that you did not expect or did not think was possible to happen. And Peter, he leaves marveling at what's happened. I can only imagine, you know, what a weekend they've had. The apostles, what a weekend they've had. On Friday, they watched their teacher, their beloved teacher, die this horrific death and have spent the better part of two days grief-stricken. The past couple days have been soul-wrenching for them. I can only imagine the tears. It's one thing, you know, it's always hard to lose someone you love. The older they are, that helps a little bit because we tell ourselves that they've lived a full life. When someone dies in their prime, it's really hard 
Keith Thomas, in his book, Religion and the Decline of Magic, talks about when Reformed theology hit the British Isles and the English Reformation. A lot of the superstition was kind of sucked out of the, the air, but, but ghost stories were thriving in England at that time before the English Reformation happened because people were dying young. And when people die young, it leaves this massive gap, this huge void. And when you're grieving for someone, visions of that person are all around. My brother died at 39 years old and I had dreams for a year and a half that he was still alive. Now, critics of the story, higher criticisms of the Bible will say, look, this is what the disciples were experiencing. A kind of grief-stricken, you know, spiritualism. They thought they saw Jesus because they wanted to see Jesus. But the body is missing. And the other gospel accounts tell us that the soldiers are worried I mean, all the soldiers had to do is say, look, Pilate, the body's right there. They can imagine anything they want. But they worried because the body was gone, and they had to make up a story saying, uh, the apostle stole them. His, his followers stole the body. They could not account for it. They couldn't account for that missing body. But what a weekend they've had. Grief-stricken for the better part of two days, and now... News is spreading that his body is missing from the tomb and he's come back to life. Now, many, many New Testament scholars have made this argument, and I'm not going to make it now, but this idea that people in the first century were like more gullible is just not true. People knew back then, just like they know today, that dead people don't rise. It was just as astonishing then as it would have been today. That's why it spread like wildfire, because there's this empty tomb. Now, next week, we'll get a little bit more into the eyewitnesses, those two components combined, the empty tomb and then the people actually seeing the risen Jesus. Those two things together make this story like granite. And it launched the Christian movement, not like those other movements, but it launched this movement. It, it galvanized this movement forward to become what it is today. The message of Jesus, but the empty tomb and the post-resurrection witnesses of Jesus. Talk about an emotional roller coaster. Moving from despair to hope instantly. There have been stories of people being thinking, you know, a wife thinking her husband was killed in combat in wars past. A year goes by. There are some obscure stories from the front lines of Europe and Japan, the, the Pacific Theater, where a husband who is thought to be dead a year later shows up on the scene. You can only imagine the emotion that that wife would have experienced thinking her husband was dead. A, a, good, a good movie that gets after this is Cast Away with Tom Hanks, where he's three or four years on this island. It's one of my favorite movies. It's such a good movie. And he comes back in his ex fiance who sees him when she's like she comes to the place where he's at and she practically faints the idea that someone who you loved who's gone would come back to life and this brings us to our second point and i'm not going to be much longer but the second point is the resurrection vindicates hope because it's one thing to have hope in something that has no possibility or very slim chance 
of being fulfilled, but the resurrection vindicates hope because it says that hope is not in vain. And why is hope not in vain? Because it renders death not meaningless, but powerless. And this is really where I believe the power of the resurrection. So, this is, so if you weren't paying close attention earlier, I want you to pay really close attention now. Death is not meaningless. It has tons of meaning. Every time someone we love dies, it says to us just how wrong this world is right now. Every time someone dies, it says to us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not the way it was meant to be. The resurrection doesn't render death meaningless. So it has lots of meaning. But it renders it powerless. I was on a flight home recently. I was out of town. And on my, I was missing my wife so bad. And when you miss somebody desperately, your mind starts thinking about things that will keep you from reuniting with them. So as I got on the plane to go home at the end of my trip recently, she was in Boston and she, was, she had just gotten back home and it had been two and a half going on three weeks and I was just aching for her because I love her so much. And um, this one's going out to you, babe. <laughs> it's an illustration about her. But I was on that plane and I was overcome with fear because I realized, I thought about that Christians die in plane crashes and in earthquakes and they die of cancer. And God lets that happen sometimes. And I was overcome with a sense of fear when I thought about the fact that God's love for me may not prevent me from falling 30,000 feet out of the sky to my death. I was on the planet. I'd never had so much fear thinking of the fact that God lets believers die sometimes. And I was wrestling in my mind why that is. Like, why, God? Like, why doesn't serving and worshiping you give us kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free pass? Now, I believe God does genuinely and generally protect his people. And he causes his saints to thrive. I believe that. I believe that there is a hedge of protection in some sense, but not all the time. And I was wrestling with that. And I thought, as, as if it were God speaking to me directly, what could Christians offer a suffering world if they themselves were immune from it? What would we have to say to a world steeped in suffering and pain, if we ourselves were immune from it. Nothing. Nothing. And that caused me to think about Jesus. What could God possibly say to a world like ours if he himself lived in immune splendor, completely insulated and protected from the suffering of this world. What could he say? If he were immune to it, John Stott in his amazing book, The Cross of Christ, says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. Now that statement may seem shocking and overblown, but the more I read it, the more I completely get that statement. 
because it highlights the fact that before the cross, many could not believe in Jesus. Death was too much of a barrier to believe in a good God for many people. We say, well, there was the Israelites. Well, we think about the Is- that faith only lived among the Israelites, and even among them it did not live very vibrantly. They were always falling into sin. But the suffering and death of Jesus reveals something about God not previously revealed. It reveals to the world something that had not previously been known to the world, and that is the fact that God suffers along with us. And sitting there on that plane as it taxied on the runway, it struck me that resurrection, that the resurrection means that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. For me, that was an epiphany. You may say, oh yeah, we know that. It was like I heard it clear in my head that death is not the worst thing. That is the message of the resurrection, that death is not the worst thing because it doesn't end human existence. But for many people and for many of us, death is the worst thing. And this hope is the Christian hope. It's why martyrs go to their death with a smile. It's why a Christian dying of cancer can be on his deathbed or in hospice and sing a hymn and be touched and moved with that hope because it is the confidence that death does not end human existence and death is not the worst thing that can happen. But see, for the world, I know I'm carrying on here, but I really want to make this point before I close here in a second. For the world, death is the worst thing that can happen. That is fundamentally one of the biggest difference between those whose confidence is in the risen Lord. For the world who does not see things the way we do, death is the worst thing. Death stings. Death is the victor because no one escapes it. So you get in all the fun and hedonism you can right now. And it reveals the cynicism of the world that there's nothing better coming in this right here. In his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking the Resurrection, Tom Wright says, people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. And so we're people of hope, not cynicism. We're people of hope, not cynicism, because we believe that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. But for many people, it absolutely is. Death is the absolute worst thing that can happen. But Jesus and his resurrection says, no, it's not. Are you hopeful this morning? Not simply one day that you'll be resurrected from the dead, but that everything you do has meaning because of that? Because if you believe death ends at all, then the meaning is all subjective and individual. But if you believe that the hope of the resurrection means that what we do in this life lasts into eternity, the cynicism fades away. Let us live as resurrection people, as people assured that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. And let us surprise others with that hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now. For this certain word, Lord, as the story of the empty tomb reveals to us that, number one, the resurrection is not self-explanatory. It does not immediately offer up its fruit to those who simply read the story. It must be explained. 
And in explaining the story, the hope is conveyed to us that we live on through death into resurrected lives at the coming of Christ in his resurrected body. And his resurrection from the dead inaugurates the new creation, a new creation, a new world in which death is no more. May we have confidence in that hope. In Christ's name, amen.